Something's fuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast with your host, Buddy Satello, and special guest host this week, Mike Leno. Thank you for joining us this week, Mike. There's lots to talk about in wrestling this week, and, and certainly um, uh, what we want to focus on this week uh, is the unfortunate passing of uh, Jim Crockett Jr., and I know you have a lot of stories about him, but we also want to let the audience know that we don't have Evan again this week. He's still working on just putting the very final touches on his book, and we're all looking forward to when he can rejoin us uh, when that book is ready to go. So um, I know he even has a few of your pictures in his upcoming book. So. A lot of pictures. What a book that's going to be. And uh, some are Dave Brzezinski's pictures, and uh, uh, but hopefully I think I have the majority. But it's going to be quite the story. Evans had one of those only in wrestling lives where music business and adult film business. His mom uh, did some work in and so many things. But the, the movie, of course, uh, The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. And, oh, gosh, Evan put out a newsletter perhaps longer than anybody else. I think it was like 30 years of wrestling then and now. And all of the stuff that he's been doing. I mean, we did Legends Radio for... I don't know, like 18 years, something like that. And also a lot of the people that were in his life, and that, you know, are no longer around. And, you know, it's it's that's the unfortunate thing that we're going to talk about tonight and something that keeps becoming a repeat story in our business, which is how people are gone. It's not just Jim Crockett Jr. who... Um, it was kind of poignant that they had the match in AEW Wednesday night with J.J. Dillon coming out. Nobody's seen him. I've been talking to him regularly. But J.J. Dillon came out with Tully Blanchard in that six-man, and he wore, Tully had the uh, United States 10 pounds of silver belt, not 10 pounds of gold. That was the NWA title, but the Mid-Atlantic, Charlotte, Jim Crockett Jr. promotion, particularly when they took over the time slot at WTBS, Ted Turner's in 85, after Black Friday and all those problems of, replacing the fantastic Georgia Championship Wrestling with a subpar, inferior WWF TV product the fans didn't like right. at didn't all. Didn't that last only like a couple months or something? It was, it was... It, I mean, it wasn't bad, but, you know, you had to know that product... It was the wrong fit. It was like putting on, a, a, you know, a, a pair of shoes that was two sizes too small. It just didn't feel right to have uh, the WWE or the WWF at that time on Turner. No, that's a long story that I will get into, but I wanted to say after, so that Jim Crockett Jr., son of Jim Crockett Sr., who had that territory in mid-Atlantic and the Carolinas for ages, and, and they toured in parts of Virginia, etc. But we also lost former women's world champion Ann Casey, Buddy Colt. These are all people I knew, and I would see him later on. I mean, knew him when they're in their prime, Buddy Colt, who was going to have had, uh, it was either down to he or Bobby Shane, Eddie Graham was going to put the uh, bond on them to become NWA champion and had suggested them. So those NWA annual Vegas meetings, forget if they were in like August of each year, with Sam Munchnick and all of the NWA promoters. I mean, everybody, Giant Baba would come in, Dusty would come in, depending on, you know, if he was representing Florida or Atlanta office. So Buddy Colt was one of those. And then former Tri-WF World Tag Team Champion with Tony Gurria twice, that being Dean Ho. His real name was Dean Higuchi, and he wrestled as that 
in the Pacific Northwest and in Australia and Japan and other places. Dean Ho was big in San Francisco. He, he was, of course, he was big, right? You, you're exactly right. I remember being, I remember a tag team of him and Peter Mayavia, you know, uh, uh, tagging when and seeing them. Dean Ho and Peter Mayavia. I think they faced the Invaders, or maybe it was the Medics. And that was a hot feud when I was a really young kid. That's right. It was invaders, invaders managed by a guy who co-hosted my TV show for seven years, and um, uh, Gary Kaiser, but he, the, the ring name he was using was Gerhard Kaiser. And he got that Gerhard name because that was Roy's uh, second and last TV guy for a good 12-some-odd years, Hank Renner. His middle name was Gerhardt. So Gary Gerhardt Kaiser managed the uh, both the Infernos and the uh, oh gosh the in, interns, but the ma yeah, the mass uh, invaders were the ones that you're thinking of. And then Dean Ho was this was the period when Roy fired Pat Patterson in '76, and then they first went to for about a year uh, as lead babyface Kevin Sullivan, who was just this green kid from. Florida by way of Tri-WF. He started, you know, because he's from Boston. So he started working for Vince Sr., went to Florida, brought Bob Rubin from Florida and uh, Barry Orton, Bob Orton Jr.'s uh, brother. But, you know, that was fine for a time. And then they went back to the tried and true lead baby faces of Dean Ho and uh, Pepper Gomez to a certain extent. And Pepper Jimmy Gomez St was a big local guy around here, too. He uh, spent a lot of time in in Northern California. Yeah, but he yeah. was around the world. He was WWA world champion for Dick the Bruiser. He was all kinds of different champions, like North American champion at Houston for Paul Bosch, legendary promoter. Um, he worked in uh, Dallas. He worked all of the four Texas territories, Amarillo for the Funks. But he's um, very underappreciated. Pepper Gomez doesn't get a lot of talk. You know, the, the, he, he sort of, Dean Ho doesn't get mentioned very much, you know. Uh, even Peter Maivia. The wayside. Really That's the the problem. These are people I knew, and at the time, uh, particularly Pepper Gomez was on the cover of Wrestling World. He was on the cover of a 1963 Wrestling Review magazine twice. Uh, lead, and that's when it was just the cover photo was one guy, uh, which was huge. So 60s and 70s, even though he started and he started, Pepper Gomez started at uh, L.A. City College, and he was a football, track and field guy. Did some amateur wrestling, but came the way of uh, a pro. And he was main eventing in Los Angeles and San Francisco at the same time. Two different territories, which was kind of unheard of. Very few people. Roddy Piper did it with Lonnie Maine later on, a decade later. But, uh, but Pepper, Pepper was known as, as the man with the iron stomach, right? Wasn't that cast his? Iron stomach, cast iron stomach. They did the, first they did the angle in 62, one of the greatest San Francisco feuds for Roy Shire of all time where Pepper would have all these baby faces get up on a ladder and jump uh, onto his stomach to prove that he had a cast iron stomach and then lead heel, Ray Stevens said, oh, let me try that. And Pepper reluctantly let him get up there. But instead of just jumping with his feet, he did the knee drop, his famous bombs away knee drop right onto uh, Pepper's throat, I think it was. They had Pepper, you know, coughing up blood. And it's a great, tremendous angle that was supposed to have sold out Candlestick Park, an outdoor show. They'd already had main events that sold out at the Cow Palace. They were going to do a Candlestick Park in 63, 
And Roy was kind of a daredevil and he injured himself badly in a motorcycle accident. And that match never happened at Candlestick where they would, I'm, they would have drawn like 35,000 people minimum, probably, you know, maybe 38,000, um, which was a real shame. But you no, know, Pepper was a big deal. And then they would rely on him in Los Angeles was my primary home base shooting ringside for the a program. I was one of you know several photographers, not the only one shooting ringside for the program, but I was the only one also going into the locker room. Like when Terry Funk had just won the NWA title and like 10 days later came into Los Angeles, I shot a ton of pictures of him with the belt doing everything. And we'll talk about Terry in a little while as it relates to Mid-Atlantic. Yes. San Francisco was my secondary home base because I would come up for all the top Roy Shire shows until... Um, I moved up there in January 79, but from 73 on, Alan Bolte, who was not only Roy Shire's cow I remember Alan. Yeah, he's the, the he announcer. Was, he was the ring announcer for Roy Shire, and occasionally um, when uh, Pepper Martin couldn't do color commentary with Walt Harris and later Hank Renner, Alan would occasionally fill in, maybe once or twice a year fill in, but he produced the programs from December 73 on. And I was oddly the only photographer shooting ringside. And I was not even local. I was having to fly up. Um, and he would list on the table of contents page, uh, action wrestling program is photographed exclusively by Mike Leno. But it was an amazing program because most programs at that point, like in LA, was one piece of paper folded like twice. So it had like, you know, say four sides to it. It was kind of half-assed. Both these programs would be 20 to 26 pages long, legit pages, you know, so it'd be like 14 pieces of paper, 28 sides. That was, you know, as big a program as I'd ever seen. So you had all kinds of stories and we got a lot of photos in there, but so. I really liked Alan. I really liked working with Alan. He was, he was there when I first got to all pro wrestling and he was the all pro wrestling announcer, but a little interesting side note when um, the boys of APW broke off from all pro wrestling, like uh, Modest and, and Donovan Morgan, and those folks all went over to pro wrestling iron. Well, they formed pro wrestling iron, it was their own answer right. to. They know got my brother, they got my brother to be the announcer. Um, I don't know if you remember that. I don't know if you. He'd spent a lot of time with Iron that much to, to meet my brother, but he was the announcer for Pro Wrestling Iron. And the reason why they chose him over Alan Bolte, even though they really liked Alan, is that unfortunately Alan is such a big guy. He's a tall, you know, dude. And and it was awkward to have an announcer that was like maybe sometimes like six inches taller than the wrestling talent. And my brother is you know, I love him, but he's nice and schlubby. He doesn't look, you know, like he's going to, you know, body slam anybody anytime soon. What's his work name? What is he? Oh, Warren Michaels. Uh, did he, was he, um, he was kind of short and stocky? Was that him? Yeah, he's, uh, he's like a couple inches taller than I am. And, and, and balding. You, 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 yeah, I'm sure you've taken a few pictures of him. Somewhere no, down there the for all the iron shows because yeah, you were there. Big exits were... when those guys left. It was primarily Modest and Donovan's the brains. Frank Murdoch is their primary partner, and he was the president basically uh, and ran the day to day of uh, Pro Wrestling Iron because uh, Modest and 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 Morgan and Justice and Delete they were all in Japan 
a lot of the time. And so the day-to-day stuff all went to Frank Murdoch. And then they would call me up for business advice and legal advice, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, because I am a real-life attorney. So I was the kind of the legal staff and, and, and sort of business management for uh, Pro Wrestling Iron when Frank Murdoch needed, needed help on stuff like that. Does anybody still talk to Frank? I got to see. I haven't talked to him in decades. And he, I would love to have him on the show if you know we ever can get a hold a little, of him. A little harder because they're bitter about the business. No, I was covering both APW when that left, when they left, and then of course I covered all the Iron shows. And occasionally, you know, here I am shooting ringside, and they would say, "Well, Mike, our ringside announcer didn't show up." They would have me ring announce too. Modest would. So I was there, for example, when she started, the first place I ever saw her, so I don't know if she went through APW's boot camp with Sarah D'Amato, Sarah Del Rey. Yeah. She worked as, uh, for some reason, Roland just had her Nikki. work with that dumb Nikki. And then she had to use her own name. Well, she was calling herself Sarah Del Rey, but her real name is Sarah D'Amato before she went to WWE's training center in NXT, but in Iron, uh, probably the best match I ever shot or having was against the guy, and that's Nigel McGuinness from Ring of Honor. She worked a match. That was with great. I remember that. Actually, she also had some great matches against Susumi Sakai. I yeah. loved those matches. Those are and cheerleader Melissa. She faced cheerleader Melissa a lot. You yeah. know, um, APW before the whole break happened. Right. And later on, when the uh, well. I, 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 I forget what happened, um, how many years Iron lasted. It was only about three. Yeah, I think we got about three years in there, from 2003 to about 2006. Well, they, they left in 2001. King of the Indies was like August of 2001, and right after that was when they formed Iron. They completely split. They took a lot of the front office staff, referees, and it was exactly... It took about a year for them to do their first show. They didn't do a show right away. They, did, they started the school, but it was exactly the same as with uh, Noah was started when all of the All Japan guys, when Baba died, his wife was kind of a, a piece of work and would yell and scream at people. And she was very difficult to get along with, with most people. Um, and they they just ha- had enough of her. And she um, she lost their face. So everybody left except for uh Kawada, he was the only guy that left. I mean, everybody left, even the old-time legends. They went to Noah, which was happening, Misawa's promotion. And then uh, they, Misawa's promotion, Noah was utilizing Modest and Donovan and Bison and maybe a guy here and there. Uh, but I don't, think, I don't think if Max Justice, Mike Diamond ever did Japan. I don't remember. I do know that they took uh, uh, Seth, who was, you know, uh, Ryan Drago, who then wound up being um, part of the VOD villains. He had his tour in Japan. Psycho Seth? Yeah. Psycho Seth or, or, or Ryan Drago or... Gorilla, Pro Wrestling Gorilla in L.A. He went down there, too. Right, right. Um, you know, so there, there was a lot of, like... And then, you know, uh, uh, there were some other young talents who were just starting out there, like Rick Luxury you know, was just getting a start out there, too. So, you know, it, it, there was a lot of nexus. Rick, Rick Luxury, did, wasn't he trained in Sacramento or Reno, maybe by Big yeah. Up, something like yeah. that? Yeah, by the, uh, I think, over in the uh, uh, Monster Factory that they have, uh, uh, Paul Isadora and the Reno Scum, 
run up there in 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 Reno. But you know, you know how it is too. Like guys just rotate around. They 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 do you know they learn some stuff in Sacramento. They go to Reno. They get trained there. They go to the Bay Area. They get some training here. You know, a lot of people don't understand this about wrestling that a lot of wrestlers don't always just train in the same spot. You know, they rotate around. They finessed. Yeah, they get finessed. Like the if if Sarah D'Amato, Sarah Del Rey, did start an APW. Then she really finessed and came into her own, and she had even more training and better training at Iron with Modest and Donovan and everybody that taught, taught there. Who, who were the primary instructors? So we are going to get to our tribute to Jim Crockett Jr. and the other three legends. Oh, absolutely. But um, uh, we had uh, uh, a lot of it was uh, 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 Modest was doing a lot of training, and more, Donovan Morgan was doing a lot of training at Pro Wrestling Iron. And then, um, you know, Frank Murdoch, when he was there, did do some, some training as well. Um, and I remember learning a lot from Max Justice when he was at Pro Wrestling Iron. He's a surprisingly good teacher. And another person, who, you know, Vinny Massaro was doing a lot of training there. And yeah, not um, Iron. He was at the APW. He stayed right. at APW. He was doing, he, uh, yeah. That, the, when he came over there, he did do some assistant, some assistant training. Um, a lot of it was just sort of like, you know, um, uh, uh, a lot of the talent that would come through there would also spend the Saturday working with the, the boys and training. Like you'd have Christopher Daniels giving some some classes to, you know, some of the guys that were there. And we were lucky enough to have, you know, um, some other guys stop through that were I mean, it was great. We even had one match with Misawa there himself, you know, and. And the kind of respect that that he generated was really amazing. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Mark Smith would come back from Japan or his Puerto Rican tours and show guys things that he'd learned and stuff that he picked up from when he was overseas. So there, there was more of a collectiveness, and there wasn't really so much of like the head trainer and and the rigidity of the system that existed in APW. Like, in APW, there was the system that was created by uh, uh, Thompson, not Robert Thompson, but Ricky. Uh, Ricky. Ricky, Ricky started it. Ricky was a Roy Shire enhancement talent. And that, that sort of, like, wrestling style was very rigid in APW. You really had to do things the way that it was formed by Ricky and by Roland Alexander. And, you know, if you deviated from that, they weren't very happy. Um, and then, you know, as time moved on and they moved over to Pro Wrestling Iron, it really became more fluid and it was more trying to adapt to what Noah wanted and the Noah style and that strong Japanese style that then sort of infiltrated. But there wasn't a set of moves that you kind of had to do or know how to do like no, it was in APW. It was a hybridized thing. The thing that we were blessed with, you know, APW went through, I don't even know if we could remember and name all the trainers because initially it was just Ricky Thompson. And then I forget when things changed because Ricky left after about four years, three, four years, he was head trainer. It was called Pacifico Sports then. The show end of it was called All Pro Wrestling. And they eventually changed the name to the boot camp, APW boot camp. But I forget if that was like 99, 2000, something like That's that. That's right when I joined. That's right when I joined. Nine, yeah. Um, 
but for example, uh, well, Robert Thompson, and it's, he was no relation to Ricky Thompson. He's got a different last name, but he became head trainer. But then I think he had quite a few assistant trainers from Jardy Franz for flying style to Vinnie Massaro to Mayock the magician. I forget what that guy's real. He changed his name to something else. Jody, I think, or Jordy, or I'm dead. James Watkins. Oh, James Watkins. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, it's been so long. And uh, uh, but the one of the m many things I think the the leap sing thing was a precipitating thing. The Brian Ong death hadn't happened yet, but the main thing was uh, they were going to put over and then announce at King of the Indies, which again I think was August of two thousand one, that. American Dragon, Brian Danielson, who we now know in WWE as Daniel Bryan, was going to become head trainer. And that just, because he was an outsider, he wasn't from there, and he was from Oregon, and then he went to Texas to train with Shawn Michaels. And I don't know why Roland did that, because he must have known he was going to piss off all of his talent, bringing in an outsider, not only having, putting him over in King of the Indies over Loki in the main event, but uh, you remember Donovan Morgan, for example, had the match with Brian Danielson and he pretended he was, you know, injured. You know, they, they locked up or something happened or was it Bison Smith? It was it was it was Donovan against uh, Bison and they were both okay. headed on the way out and they both knew they were going to have to job to uh, American Dragon. So they decided to double disqualify themselves and have the worst match of their collective careers, both of them by laying down and having a no, uh, you know, basically a non-competitive match, which should have been a great match, but instead, in fact, a few months earlier, or maybe about six months earlier, uh, um, Mark Smith as Super Destroyer 2000 faced uh, Donovan Morgan in a title match for Donovan Morgan's uh, uh, world title or the, the heavyweight championship. And that actually turned out to be one of the best matches I ever saw or managed, period. That was a great one. And so Roland was expecting those two to have the same kind of a match uh, in King of the Indies. And instead, they undersold that match and they kind of screwed Roland over because they were mad that Roland... Well, there was, there was a whole dynamic there, especially because of the fact that Roland was upset that Donovan and Modest and and Bison weren't going to include Roland in the Noah deal. Roland wanted his 10%. They were with them to when they formed Iron. They were taking that Noah deal away. Well, they wanted Roland wanted it all to go through APW and get his cut. But and I've told this story before, but I'll say it again. Roland when Roland went to meet the Noah um, executives, okay? The NOAA executives came out to meet Roland. They were wearing $1,000 suits, okay? Roland came out wearing a tank top, uh, a, a, a baseball hat on backwards, hadn't shaved in like three days, looked like he hadn't slept in a week, and, and was wearing flip-flops and uh, cut-off shorts. You know, like these, like those shorts that you, like they were sweats, but they were cut off at the knees. And that, those were his shorts. And he looked like he hadn't changed anything in like about three or four days. So he put off an image to the NOAA executives of just the kind of thing that they absolutely didn't want to deal with. And so the NOAA executives said, 
to Modest and said to uh, uh, Modest and Morgan and Bison, we want you guys, but we don't want to work with this rolling guy. He's just an embarrassment. He's He looks like such a, a, a schlep that we don't want to deal with him. So we'll help you form a new wrestling federation that has ties to Noah, but we don't want to have anything to do with Roman. You and, remember at, the show, at one of the uh, at, at two... Uh, what did they call the Halloween show? Is it Halloween Hell? Halloween Havoc. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. That's the uh, CW's paper. Halloween Hell. Halloween Hell, yes. Twice I dressed up as Roland. I had the dirty sweats, the tank top, the hat backwards, the the dark sunglasses, the Grella Monsoon sunglasses. You know, even at nighttime, you wear the. So, you know, we had this relationship, but I would poke fun at him. And I, you know, I often told them you got to dress up when you're meeting these people and Austin came I don't even know what the reason that Austin and or Savage came to the school just once briefly but I said to him and he never would listen I go you have to dress up when WWE people come if they're looking at some talent you know it might have been uh, Mike Lockwood Crash Holly I can't remember uh, because and I he, think it was also Spike Dudley no Matt- Charlie, Matt, Matt uh, Heisen was uh, Spike Dudley. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, but I think they came to see... O'Grady, Mike Lockwood, they came to look at him because Matt Heisen was already long gone. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. He made it in, and Crash Holly was uh, not politically correct, and he acted like a big stuff, and he went for an ECW tryout, and they, he so pissed them off, they didn't even use him on the show, and he insulted Taz somehow. Uh, sadly, and then he came back and told the whole tale in a shoot interview. Uh, you know, it, he opened up an APW gym wars, uh, doing his promo on the couch. He just come back with his tail between his legs. I remember school. that. I remember it, that. It was a real. You know, we were all hoping, hey, this is going to be great for him. But Matt Heisen, who was Spike Dudley, and joined the whole Dusty Clan. He did much better because he knew how to play the game. And then a little bit later, Vic Grimes, which I don't want to get into. Um, but we can talk more about, you know, one thing cool about Northern California history is Roland did his best to try to work with Jerk White. That's what I call Kirk White. Yeah, he's never going to be a guest on this program, so you can call him whatever you want. No, well, he is only about money. You, you know, say whatever you want to say about Roland Alexander, and um, a lot of that personally came out. You, you know, for example, the uh, Beyond the Mat. I had worked with Barry Blackstein and his money guy, wrestling coverage Barry Bloom, as their still image photographer for years, and we or he filmed you know matches in L.A. and a ton in Vegas, the T.C. Martin stuff. In Vegas, you know, like when Terry Funk would meet Cactus Jack and Sabu in a three-way, and then the promotion, he, I don't know what, he cheated some people at the Silver Nugget Arena in Vegas, and he had to move it to uh, his hometown of Sacramento, where his sister, who had no wrestling knowledge, he put made her the lead heel manager, which was crazy. So, but anyway, so Blaustein, I invited him to come up to APW. And he had been shooting this pre-production footage. He had no idea where he was going to go. And I, I may not have been the only one, and I'm not trying to put myself over, but I said, you should try focusing this thing. You know, you're going to be shooting forever. I don't know when you're going to get this done, but you should focus on a wrestler from the past, a legend like Terry Funk, then somebody from today, like 
Mick Foley, then he was Mankind, Cactus Jack, and WWF. And then somebody, a superstar from tomorrow, and I suggested either Chris Candido or Mike Modest. And that's why Blasting came up to look at Mike Modest. And that's, Roland spent all that money titting up the gym wars, you know, the garage. He had the camouflage uh, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He really made it look fantastic. But he, you know, so in the course of all of that, and then, you know, the legend got changed. I think Terry Funk had a big role, but Jake Roberts was now sort of the aging legend. Uh, he went with Mick Foley, and uh, now I'm forgetting who he used as his uh, young talent. Uh, in well, Tony that. Jones, he, you know, he, he featured Tony Jones. He, had a part. he wasn't the lead young guy of today. He had a, a great part, and, and Tony's so well-spoken and, you know, athletic with all the amateur credentials. But Roland came off as such a carny, which he relished. We talked to Tony about that about a month ago. Uh, you know, so... I don't know. Roland should have dressed up and been, you know, he's going to be in a documentary with Vince McMahon. Uh, he knew what he was getting into and he should have dressed the part. But what I was going to say was, so doing joint shows, he did it twice. APW versus Big Time Wrestling, which was just Kirk White's copycat name. He stole the name Big Time Wrestling. That was the name of Roy Shire's promotion. Where He never actually earned it from Roy Shire. He never actually bought it from Shire. It just... <laughs> Nope. Just, nope. He just used it, you know, I mean, Roy folded his tent in January of 82. And um, so how Kirk got started was Woody Farmer had a cable access show down in Newark. And Woody was having problems. With, it was uh, United Artists Cable before it became Comcast down there. Small studio, but they let him keep a dedicated ring there for these weekly tapings. And Woody was going to try to do something with... Uh, another cable system. So he gave the time slot and the cable access thing to Kirk Way, who was bringing in some names like Reggie Bennett. I, I suggested her from Japan and some people like former Glow Lady wrestler who lived in L.A., Cheryl Rusa, and, and other folks. Jessica Sato, who played Reggie Bennett's sister for Kirk's little TV thing. And then Reggie got her a gig over in the JWP, Women's Promotion of Japan. So it, it was fun, and Woody helped him start doing signings. His very first ones were with Greg Valentine and Buddy Rose and Bruce Beefcake. Um, but, you know, he, he never showed any thankfulness. Like when I... No, no, and I will say this about Kirk White. I only, I only performed for him once, and I will say this about Kirk White. Kirk White is one of the few people that I know of that you can have a conversation with him, and he'll be talking to you, and pretty much he is having a completely different conversation than the one you are having with him. Whatever you think you're talking about with Kirk White, he has a completely different view of what you're saying to him. And, and again, if it doesn't revolve around money and how it turns into profit for him, he doesn't hear a word you yeah, are saying. He doesn't have the passion. He was a mark. He was just a fan. Nothing wrong with that in the day. He didn't even come around until towards the last couple of years of Roy Shire's thing anyway. But a big mark for Shire's wrestling, that's fine. But it was all about money for him. He didn't have the passion that Roland did or, say, Rick Bass. Everything to him is a commodity. Every Everybody that walks in front of Kirk White is a dollar sign, either a bigger dollar sign or a smaller dollar sign or no dollar sign. And if it's no dollar sign, 
you have no value whatsoever to Kirk White. If it's well, not, say, I rode with him to some uh, really tiny WWF house shows. One was like, it wasn't Clear Lake, but it was like way up there. Probably Kanaktai uh, or something. Yeah. And one with Vallejo, um, something like that. But so we ride up there. He doesn't say anything until we enter the building. And I, he knows I'm going backstage to get my photographer's credential. There was no TV there. I knew Pat Patterson was there. He or Mick Foley would help me out, get the press thing so I could shoot ringside. But like he knows I'm doing that. I'm busy with that. And he goes, uh, Mike, by the way, so yes, last minute. Hey, I've got about 58 by 10s of Kurt Angle. Can you ask him? to sign them for me, and, and I, I refused to do it. And so I had heat with him ever since. And then uh, he did his little tiny, sometimes, I mean, they were okay, those little uh, conventions that he did. They were really small, dinky in comparison to big ones, like the one in Mid-Atlantic. I can't think, Greg Price threw fantastic ones at Mid-Atlantic, Charlotte every year, and other great conventions. And, and these were kind of pathetic at times. They got better a little bit later on. But he asked me to book Pat Patterson for him and do all of this stuff. And then he did me on my pay. He was like running away from me every time I, at the convention, I went up to him. And then that evening, you know, he, he left early or he left, you know, immediately when the convention was over and had his people, his volunteers clean up. Uh, it was on, a, it was a one day only thing on Saturday. And I call him at home, doesn't answer his phone. I accidentally got him the next morning. I was using uh, my wife's cell phone. I didn't recognize the number. And he picked up and he goes, oh. And I go, you, you, you stiffed me. You owe me. You know, and it was, I ran all of his, I did this several years ago. I, he asked me to run all of his radio, TV, newspaper. I got him all of this stuff at no cost. So all I was to get paid was 150 bucks. And I'm talking, I worked for three, four, five weeks. I got him stuff in the San Francisco Chronicle. I got him wrestlers where, you know, he, the, the lead guys he had, Piper and Bret Hart and um, uh, some other names, Honky Tug Man. I got him on ESPN on the Razor and Mr. T show. And so he, he stiffs me. But then he says, well, you should have uh, hit me up before uh, you saw me leave last night. You know, this is Sunday morning after the Saturday. Thing. That's bullshit. You were running away from me. You had no intention of let, paying. Let's, let's summarize it by saying when people say they hate wrestling promoters, they're thinking about Kirk White. But he's, he's the epitome of why people hate wrestling promoters. But in contrast, Rick Bassman, who worked with Roland, they had a UPW versus APW. Fan. I remember Rick Bassman and working with him. UPW was out of Orange County, you know, just south of Los Angeles. Very professional. Very professional, because he also had a dojo where he had the Tom Howard training MMA superstars from... Uh, well, that's Earth. where we got John Cena from. Yeah, that, that was the wrestling part of it. And I shot down there as well for all of his spectaculars. He had a ton of talent, but when Chris Daniels and Frankie Kazarian and Samoa Joe and Keiji Sakota and Melissa, who was engaged to one of the Ballard twins or, you know, girlfriend, longtime girlfriend... They would all come up, and Melissa would manage as cheerleader. Melissa managing—that was the first we ever saw of her managing the Ballard twins. But I saw her do that at UPW, and they had tremendous feuds. And then they were part of um, those Vallejo shows, which culminated. You know, we had a series of Vallejo shows. Those were great. Those are those are the highlights of my wrestling life, pretty much. Those Vallejo shows. In King of the Indies, and after the two night 
Friday, Saturday night, King of the Indies, that was it for Vallejo. Everything was back to the, uh, the gym. I don't know why we lost. Maybe it was just a six-month deal. Well, was- the, the, the place itself closed, the Mare Island um, sports facility that we were at. They just they couldn't run it. It was massive. Remember, it was it was huge, and I don't think they could cover the costs. It was like it reminded me. You know, I after that happened, I kept suggesting the Palladium in Alameda, which was near me. You know, just outside of Oakland, it was exactly same thing, but it was much closer to where everybody was. You know, Vallejo was kind of far away. It was close to my house. I loved it. I could be at the show in like 20 minutes. I I, I thought it was great. Those were all great, you know, house shows and blah, blah, blah. Uh, But Bassman had a wealth of talent that he would bring up. And they were all part of King of the Indies, including Spanky Brian Kendrick. Right. That he was all part of that thing. Cena never made it up here as prototype, but no, he did. No, he was up here for two matches. We had him for two uh, APW invasion, uh, UPW invasions. One at the actual garage, and then the other one was in Vallejo. I, I worked both I of those shows because I shot most all of his matches for UPW down there. He was he was a heel, and he was part of like two other giant tall guys. And him with his, uh, you know, bleach blonde mohawk. That was John Cena's prototype. But, you know, we probably should get into. Yeah, I was going to say, well, now that we've bashed Kirk White, let's talk about a different kind of promoter. And and so let's bring up the initials JCP. What do those initials mean to you? It's Jim Crockett Promotions. But you remember I was saying earlier at the start of the show. And so we really send our best. Uh, and regrets and uh, love to the families of Jim Crockett Jr., women's champion Ann Casey, Dean Ho, Dean Higuchi, and Buddy Colt, all total legends, main eventers. Jim Crockett Jr., though, when he took over for his father, Jim Crockett Sr.'s territory was known in Charlotte and and Mid-Atlantic as mostly a tag team. And they had... Uh, you know, it was really just about tag teams. You would go and they would have um, like just three matches, but they'd be very long, an hour apiece, 45 minutes apiece tag matches. Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen against, um, oh gosh, George and Sandy Scott. And uh, Bob yeah. Roop was involved in a lot of them with Ke- Bob Roop and Kevin not, Sullivan. Not, not at that period. No, no, no. Not at that period. There was Skull Murphy and Brute Bernard. It was just strictly all tag teams. And uh, Penny Banner's husband, I, I can't think of his name now. But anyway, when Jim Crockett Jr. took over, and I, 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 I don't even say the year because I'd screw up the year. I can't remember if it was like 74, 75. Okay, yeah, this is, well, I'm still a kid. I was still yeah. a young kid at that so, stage. We're talking about this much later. But when he came in, he wanted to utilize wisely um, and not a whole lot of promoters were doing that. All young guys that were up and coming. He brought in Ric Flair from Vern Gagne's school, where Rick had, when he graduated in the 72, 73, with Ricky Steamboat and Bob Bruggers and um, I think Sergeant Slaughter and Iron Sheik. They all came into Mid-Atlantic later. But he, he you know, I'm kind of simplifying things, but when he brought in Ric Flair, who was simply jobbing for guys like Chris Taylor and Larry Hennig and the AWA on TV, big fat jobber he dropped a bunch of weight he came in bleached his hair uh and then was paired with lookalike um rip hawk i don't remember if they were saying he was like a nephew a younger nephew of rip hawk but i have the uh, jim crockett 
uh, tape that he gave me of Ric Flair's very first woo, and he's doing a tag team against, I think it was Rufus R. Jones and um, uh, Tiger Conway Jr., who he was good friends with, and he does his first woo, and it was almost, not really, but it was just a, a tad light uh, racist type of verbiage used in the promo. And then, of course, the terror, uh, he brought in Johnny Valentine. I, actually, so I think Jim Crockett Jr. might have taken over in 74, uh, August, September 74, because Johnny Valentine was promised the book by my main boss in L.A., Mike LaBelle, who then rescinded it when Johnny uh, you know, came in, signed all the paperwork, went over and did a tour for Inoki in New Japan. Then he was supposed to come back to L.A. and main event against John Tolis for the America's title. But while in Japan, he gets the call from Mike LaBelle saying, I still want you to come in and blah, 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 but I'm just a little uncomfortable giving a book to an outsider. So Johnny told him to F himself, and he went on to Mid-Atlantic to book, and he booked that territory stiff. First thing he told guys, all the old-timers that he decided to keep, and um, uh, those uh, George Becker and Sandy Scott were another tag team at that period. But he said, I don't want to see any light. I want stiff punches and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to start emphasizing singles wrestling. And so Johnny uh, went with uh, uh, Flair and Valentine. But a lot of legends came in, too, that were never there before. Bobo Brazil came in and uh, a little bit later to pass the torch to Flair, George and Sandy Scott, and in tandem with their boss, Jim Crockett Jr., had Buddy Rogers come in around 77, 78 to, as the full, the real nature boy, to pass the baton uh, to Ric Flair. It was a battle of the figure four leg locks because Johnny, or excuse me, Buddy Rogers had his own figure four before Flair was even born, most likely. But he, he you know, uh, submitted to Flair and helped put Flair's legend over. And I mean, a plethora of guys came in tons of talent uh when bob remus who had uh he had become in kansas city become sergeant slaughter yes, sergeant slaughter yes right to uh, mid-atlantic i mean he just had uh you know just a plethora of great guys wahoo mcdaniel was there so johnny valentine but mostly uh jim crockett jr giving his trust to uh george and sandy scott you know helping with the book particularly george scott uh, they just, uh, so Valentine and then George and Sandy Scott just elevated that territory. And it was one of the hottest in, on the planet. And then, of course, when Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, the second incarnation, Ole Anderson's baby, it was moved to like four in the morning, five in the morning, a horrific time slot. And then Ole's partners, Jack and Jerry Briscoe and Jim Barnett, threw their weight behind. I'm simplifying this, so there's a lot more to the story. Their weight to Vince, and that's how Vince, so they switched over, did a heel turn on Ole, went to Vince McMahon, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, and Jim Barnett, who was a legendary uh, promoter and brain in the business and booker. Um, that's how Vince got Black Saturday. He got the uh, the TV show. You know, people were ready for Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was not the same as the first incarnation. Even though Gordon Soley was still doing the commentary, only the booking, and one of the lead faces was Thunderbolt Patterson. But 
they turn it on and they see this WWF program, you know, the, I guess it was the superstars, uh, WWF superstars, and they were extremely unhappy. But that had its reign, and then Ted Turner, who loved and supported wrestling, because that's what put WTBS on the map as a super station in 77, way ahead of WGN in Chicago, that uh, Jim Crockett, uh, I forget how that deal came about, but uh, NWA Wrestling returned with Jim Crockett Jr. promotions, replacing I remember that very first episode, like it was yesterday, replacing WWF's programming, and it was a big hit because you had flair and, and new faces that Georgia uh, fans and also people around the country that were watching Superstation hadn't seen these guys before. J.J. Uh, Dillon managing first uh, Buddy Landell, and then Tully Blanchard, and later the formation of the Four Horsemen, the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express. Jim Cornette is a fantastic, incredible manager. Uh, Paul Jones is a manager, the powers of pain. Paul Heyman, even back then. Later on, not at the yeah, beginning. Yeah. Not not for not until about 1990 did Heyman come in, and uh, or maybe 89, and then they did the Battle of the Midnight Express because Heyman brought in... Yeah, the other Midnight Express. See Midnight Express, Jim Cornette already at that point had the second incarnation of uh, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane, Sweet Stan Lane. Um, and uh, that was fantastic. The, that was so you, you met you met Jim Crockett Jr. What was yeah, what, for times he allowed me when he would come into L.A. or San Francisco. L.A. It was the Bill Graham Civic for his N.W.A. Jim Crockett uh, promotions house shows in L.A. It was down at the Fabulous Forum. No, no, he would give me access. Uh, gave me a press pass. I just had to ask him. But I posed him with Ric Flair, with Dusty Rhodes, and the. Uh, the Road Warriors with their six-man titles. I posed him with Paul Jones and Rick Rude, uh, but you know, got to talk to him. He was impressed that I knew all about his dad and the transition from the tag team territory of his father to what he was doing, making it hip and happening. And uh, you know, of course, the 1983. I was actually the well. It was the first SuperCard Wrestling pay per view. It wasn't the first closed circuit that would be in Los Angeles in 71 for all the Mike LaBelle, Blassie Tola shows, etc. But um, Starcade 83, December of 83 with Flair, Harley Race, a Flair for the Gold, with I think it was Kaniski as referee, Gene Kaniski and Tremendous Card, Piper, Valentine and the Dog Collar and all of that great stuff. Um, he had it way before WrestleMania. And, uh, you know, Jim Crockett Jr., uh, lasted a good four plus years with Ted Turner. And, and then, you know, they bought him out when he was having problems. But I remember the different periods because I would fly all over the country to shoot Bill Watts UWF tapings. That was what had morphed from Mid-South and then it became the syndicated TV program, uh, UWF of Watts. Um, and they, I'm right, if I'm right on the timing, it's not one way or the other. Crockett kind of overspent to buy out Bill Watts, UWF, and then later um, it wasn't Eddie Graham's anymore because he sadly died, uh, but the Florida Championship Wrestling and bought that out, but then didn't take those their champions and like pair them champion against champion. Like they should have taken Watts, UWF world champion Steve Williams and put him against, say, Flair or, or Wyndham or something like that instead of having him he was in the main event for UWF, credible, fantastic world champion, Japan legend. And then uh, when Crockett bought him Watts out, you know, they have uh, 
the champion, Steve Williams, in opening matches on pay-per-views. And it was embarrassing. Yeah, it was really too bad. I really loved the UWF. They were saying it's, it's, oh, it was incredible. The Freebirds and uh, One Man Gang. One Man Gang was a big guy then. And they had... Uh, 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 they had um, well, Eddie uh, Gilbert and Terry Taylor. Eddie Gilbert was booking genius, and he was learning at the feet of Watts. So he could have had he not died. Didn't they have uh, early the versions greatest. of Sting and the Ultimate Warrior in UWF? Uh, yeah. Then later they had Sting was part of the uh, Hot Stuff Incorporated. Eddie Gilbert's family with Rick Steiner. He was a heel. And then uh, eventually turned face. But, you know, there's all that transition stuff. And they tried mixing it up. And, and so I shot a couple of the joint, you know, before they fully closed down UWF. It was kind of a mishmash of UWF and NWA wrestlers. But it was called the UWF taping. So they're in the process of buying it. And, you know, they brought in guys that had not worked for Watts before, like Dick Murdoch. And, and so a lot of the, the talent were dropping to these NWA guys that were strictly Jim Crockett guys. So that's when, uh, in 89, when Ted Turner officially bought out Jim Crockett and had Eddie Gilbert as Booker. And immediately Eddie brought in Ricky Steamboat from WWF. And that had, that culminated yeah, in was the, huge. two to three like, fantastic pay-per-views were all five-star Flair Steamboat that everybody raved about. And then Flair versus... Uh, Flair turns face against Terry Funk, which was an absolutely incredible series. And uh, Luger and uh, gosh, was it Luger and Steamboat you know, on the undercard of that? And Gary Hart would come in later. But anyway, um, Mid Atlantic, you think of so many guys and 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 really going supernatural. I mean, Ole Anderson with his uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Uh, I, I think I, the change the name a bit because they changed the name of the, you know, just the Atlanta and Georgia titles to the national title. That became the top singles title for Ole. But uh, Jim Crockett, when he took that slot over, there wasn't a smooth transition because Vince was in the middle of Ole to Vince to Jim Crockett. But Jim had already been promoting at Mid-Atlantic successfully. And they were doing towns outside of North Carolina, parts of South Carolina, Virginia, uh, etc. And um, one of the great, great promoters, he made some uh, trips to Japan with Flair. I have some great stories. Uh, Crockett told me of uh, how he uh, bailed out Ric Flair, allegedly, according to Jim Crockett, had uh, filed for uh, bankruptcy. He kept overspending and overspending and was renting uh, uh, private planes and stuff. So Jim Crockett, when I was at a show... And I, I had to go pick him up at the airport. I picked up Flair and Ken Patera. They had come in on Jim Crockett's private plane. And, um, you know, this was after the accident and stuff. So Flair was, uh, uh, you know, he was a little bit nervous about riding in that uh, that plane, you know, because he'd had, uh, I, I think he had, it was like a 14, 15 months of recuperation from that accident. That, Broken uh, back or something, right? It paralyzed Johnny Valentine and... Uh, um, but a lot of different stories. Uh, Jim was a real studious guy, and I remember talking to him later, and he just really reamed Jim Hurd, who was the guy in 91 that uh, Ted Turner was trying to put bureaucratic guys who had no experience, no passion. And who brought us the Shockmaster, I think. He's the, yeah, uh, Jim the Hurd is the, the Shockmaster. He was there 
the night, the infamous night at the Tampa uh, Sportatorium, not the Dallas Sportatorium, but the Tampa one for, uh, uh, it was the, I think it was the Flair Fujinami rematch, but that's the night uh, at that pay per view where the Oz angle happened, where Kevin Sullivan played like, I don't know, uh, Kevin Nash was Oz. Right. Dorothy, they had all these people dressed up as the Wizard of Oz people, but Kevin Sullivan had all this makeup on, and he had a monkey on his shoulder, which ended up biting him, and he needed stitches later. He said that was the most effed-up angle he was ever a part of. Uh, Jim Hurt also had these great ideas that Jim Crockett would tell me were insane. Jim Crockett was the first guy to tell me Jim Hurd's experience was as, as an ice cream man. But Jim Hurd wanted this wrestler he was going to call Quasimodo, the hunchback. Right, that you couldn't pin because he had a humpback. Yeah, that was, you know, the brilliance. The Oz thing was like one and done. It was a one pay-per-view. He also actually came up with the, the stupid thing he pushed on Dusty, Johnny B. Bad for Mark Merrow, and it actually kind of took. He was initially a heel managed by Teddy Long. Right. And it actually went and fans, you know, enjoyed it. So we only have a few minutes left. I was going to leave at this point, but I wanted to say Ann Casey. Ann Casey was a, a, so Jim Crockett Jr., legendary promoter. The boys loved and respected him. Uh, you know, not on the level of like Paul Bosch or Sam Munchnik or I Frank. I want to know what you feel his lasting legacy is before we move on. What do you think? Of Excellent matches and, and, revitalizing the uh, the industry. But let me get into Ann Casey was a world champion wrestler who was not part of Moolah's school. And um, she would, although she would battle Moolah in matches I shot in California in 1970 and 71. I mean, she wrestled all over the place. She was one of those few indies like Vivian Vashon, Paul and Maurice Butcher and Mad Dog's sister. Uh, uh, Vivian Vachon and Kay Noble and Jean Anton and Betty Nikolai and, uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, Cherie Dupree. Uh, there was quite a few Heather Feather indie wrestlers who were not part of Moolah's school or promotion or anything like that. And uh, they were still excelled. And Ann Casey was at a cauliflower alley, as was Buddy Colt, as was Jim Crockett Jr. at our Tampa ancillary one, and then Dean Ho. Dean Ho, great memories of him. What a gentleman. He was always at the Seattle uh, Russell reunion uh, events at Dean Silverstone's house. And, uh, you know, just could pick his brain about, uh, like, Lonnie Moondog main stories. You know, he also teamed with him for Roy Shire's promotion. Dean was U.S. champion, and he had some battles. He had a, a Harley race and a title defense. So this is Dean Ho. Uh, at the Cow Palace. Uh, he had a huge feud with the heel Don Morocco. And then finally, Buddy Colt, this guy was Mr. Florida. He had all of, held all the tag titles for Eddie Graham in Florida. That was his primary base. He was geared, as was Bobby Shane, at the exact same time. One of them was going to be NWA champion. But Bobby Shane died in that separate plane accident a, a couple of months, either before or after the Ric Flair or Johnny Valentine one. Uh, and I got to shoot one of John, uh, Bobby Shane's very last matches. Uh, Buddy Colt had sent him to All Japan, and he came. He was either going or coming from All Japan. He came into our L.A. territory and had uh, just two matches for our TV. But one was a dream 10-minute uh, draw. Nobody even L.A. knew Bobby Shane. Bobby the Shane, the king, he would come to the ring a la Ernie Ladd with a crown, way before Lawler ever did it or Harley Race. And uh, 
just fantastic, colorful person, as was Buddy Colt. But Buddy Colt was in uh, the Florida accident, the the one that took Bobby Shane's life, his best friend. And uh, he was never the same. He had to retire because he was all paralyzed and messed up, as was Johnny Valentine. And became a color commentator, a babyface with Gordon Soley. Prior to that, he was one of the greatest heels ever. So we lost Jim Crockett Jr. and Casey, Dean, Poe, real last name, Higuchi, Dean Higuchi, and Buddy Colt. All incredible talents this week. AEW pay-per-view is tomorrow. And uh, at Sushi Onita's creation, the exploding barbed wire uh, match, death match. Oh man, I'm glad I've retired from doing anything in the ring. That 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 you see those kind of matches, you're like, I never want. I'm glad I never wanted to be involved in anything like that. Well, I urge people, if you're interested, or whatever they do have on the, their YouTube channel, AEW tomorrow. I think it's at three Pacific. They have the buy-in show. It's a women's tag, so you can get a little taste of AEW. But uh, that's uh, tonight is UFC. I don't know how AEW. Why you want to book a pay-per-view after the day after uh, Ultimate Fight pay-per-view? Because you know your audience may not have enough money. It's not, ever, it's not exactly the same audience. It's but, a little different. You know, but. A lot of MMA fans love pro wrestling. We'll see what their buy rates are. We'll we'll see what their buy rates are like. Well, they're doing well. And the other big news story is uh, it's not been made official, but uh, NXT is going to move from having the same time slot Wednesday Wednesday nights as AEW, which is insane. And they they did that just to screw with AEW when it debuted. So they're going to move. It didn't team. work. Nope. They've never beaten them in the ratings, maybe once. But AEW, really, its ratings should, we'll see. I mean, it might even eclipse Raw. Raw's ratings and shows have been so horrible, whereas AEW's have held steady and, and risen. And it's a more Japan-like product. They don't have... They don't start the show with big, long promos. They get right into the match. It's fun. I, I've enjoyed it so much more. And I know that the NWA is starting to come back, too. So, uh, you know, uh, there's some uh, serious... I might try to bring on here. I had him on for an hour and a half with me and Evan when the, he was just getting his feet wet with TNA. Uh, but he has always loved wrestling, sort of like David Arquette, you know, these big, massive celebrities. What a nice guy, very honest. You know, he's been fine with a talent like Thunder Rosa going to AEW. We didn't sign him to big long-term contracts. But, uh, you know, we have all of this stuff going on. We've got championship wrestling from Hollywood on uh, Sinclair stations, a la Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor is one of the best TV shows or you have ever seen. And you can go right to their website and watch their weekly TV. Um, you know, they're filming without crowds. Everybody's trying to do their best. But the crowds will be back soon, and once they are, I think it's going to make for a lot of opportunities for these, uh, you know, feds to maybe break out and possibly, you know, wrest control of the industry away from the WWE, which, in my opinion, is all well, for the best. That's the exciting thing about AEW, working with Impact and working with New Japan and working with the NWA. They all, and it's not the kind ego- of feels like the territories again, in a way, you know, the well, working together. And they tried that, but it didn't work in 85 because there were too many egos. There was Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Vern Gagne, Jim Crockett. But these guys are all the same mindset. They know that they can help each other, AEW being, you know, the big cheese. And these other ones, NWA, Impact, well, not New Japan. New Japan's on another level. But uh, Impact... their presence in the United States isn't as as big. So 
Well, it was on par, and but then the pandemic hit, and and, and they lost access TV. But they uh, on uh, uh, Roku every week has the New Japan shows, I believe, from their Santa Monica. It's an Americanized show. You really should be watching that. And then there's wrestling every night of the week, and then of course there's all kinds of lucha on weekends, lucha Azteca, and and those are older CMLL matches and they're regular. So as I said uh, before, just check out your Hispanic stations. There's at least one wrestling show on Saturday, one on Sunday. And uh, anyway, uh, buddy, I've got to get going. I, I appreciate your input this week. It's been great. Um, hopefully, we can have you again in in a few, you know, a couple more weeks when you can uh, throw in a few more guests that I know you've been working on booking and and I've been working forward to that too. Uh, Candy Divine. And I'm trying for some surprises like Bob Backlund and uh, either one or both Bushwhacker, Sheep Herders, Butch and Luke, and uh, and and then some promoters and and APW originals. So we'll keep. I'm going to keep send them all this way. We love to have them as guests, and we always love having you as a guest on our show. That's it for this week, everybody, and uh, we'll we'll see you again real soon, Mike. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, Combate Curacao. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.